Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Now, I feel a little bit bad about going into this next area because we don't have our friend of the podcast, Garen Muller, with us. But Or uh, Mueller. Or, yeah, Mueller. He's M- good, too. Remember, Mueller. 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 <laughs> He's good, too. Mueller. Mueller. But uh, I feel bad because we're talking about evidence issues. And I mean, he's our evidence guru. Yeah. Or yeah, he is. I hate to say he's a guru because he'll go straight to his head. But yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Um, so there, there are really sort of two primary areas or, or two primary evidence sort of concepts which impact the introduction of electronic evidence in court. Those are authentication and hearsay. Mm-hmm. They are separate issues, Tane. They Some are. people lump them together, oh, and they do that at their own peril. Let's don't do that, way. Let's don't. Lump no together. lumping. No, let's don't lump. That that they they really should not, and and people get confused and they conflate the concepts, and they're really very very different. So, let's talk about authentication and 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 Tane. Uh, Professor Millich, you know, he's retired now. Shut up. He's got long hair. I think he's got facial hair. It's really no just, doubt. he's just quit trying. Um, <laughs> but he is living in Florida, and, and I had the the honor of, of working with and under him when I was in law school at Georgia State. Shout out. Woo. And so he talks about authentication. Humble brag. And it was a, he says, it's a low evidentiary hurdle. Yeah. Like even you could cross this hurdle in so low tape. I don't know about that. I'm not much of a hurdler. But it is a hurdle. I mean, you've yes. got it's a low hurdle, but it's a hurdle nonetheless. It is something that has to be touched on and ad- addressed. So if you as you come to authentication, and this is going to be important if you ever wanted to make sure you keep these things separate in your mind, because Tane, it's under 24-9-901. It, Proof that authentication and hearsay are different issues. Because the hearsay rules are in what number, what hundreds of rules, Tane? The what? What you know, you know what I mean? The 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 last numbers start with a seven? No, an eight. <laughs> like eight oh three. Oh yeah. Remember Tane, remember when Garen Mueller gotcha. taught us all that? I got that. Yeah. Gosh, I wish he was here. <laughs> I bet you do. I really do. Authentication does not remove the possibility that the thing that is being introduced is forged or false. It doesn't even set up the the thing that could be forged is, is that maybe it really was a text message, but it really didn't come from John. Because, you know, there's things like spoofing, Tane, that you can say, oh, this is, you know, that's when they always call you at home at night. You have still have a home phone? No. We still have a home phone. The only people that call us are people raising money and people who are trying to sell us some sort of warranty thing. But it'll pop up. Warranties have expired so many times. But it'll pop up as being 
you know, a local number or, you know, somebody we know. Or the well, Internal Revenue Service. Yeah, they call us. And, like and answer the phone and it's, hi, this is Susan. Have you, uh, you know, warranty, blah, 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 car, blah, 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 blah. Anyway. Like, which car is that on? And they never know. But it's spoofing. Yeah. And so you can do that. Authentication is not going to remove that possibility, Tane. And people get confused that it, this has to prove that, by God, came from this particular IP address at this particular time and that phone was in her hand and all this. It doesn't have to do that. It can, but it doesn't have to do that. Instead, the law requires that the party offering the evidence, a.k.a. the proponent, yeah, to sufficiently establish that the thing being offered is what it purports to be. It's just that simple. That, that there has to be some hook to show that this is a right. a copy of a tweet from somebody to somebody. Yeah. Is this a, a, a download from your uh, text messages? Yeah. Or Facebook or whatever. Yeah. Sure. So if you, if you look at the case of Johnson versus State, 347 Georgia Appeals 831, the quote from that case is the party, the party proffering the evidence must present sufficient evidence to make out a prima facie case that the proffered evidence is what it purports to be. Once that prima facie case is established, the evidence is admitted, and the ultimate question of authenticity is left to the jury to make a final determination. Now, aren't there a couple of different ways that authentication of electronic evidence can be handled? Yeah, the low-tech way and the high-tech way. Well, tell me about the low-tech way. So the low-tech way is what we typically do. Are you okay if I go high-tech first? Okay. All right, so the high-tech way— I'm just going to ignore you until you get to the low-tech one. Well, that's what I'm saying is that this it's possible, but nobody ever does it. Is that the, is that the refrigerator humming? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just, I was just humming to myself. Go ahead. Good. The the high tech way would involve you calling in experts from AT and T, Verizon, whatever, and these experts through their cell triangulation, cell tower triangulation, IP addresses, all of this technical jargon, mm -hmm. they could actually establish that this device sent this message to that device. It's rarely used, and it's probably obvious why it's rarely used, huh, Tane? Yeah, because that's really complicated and involves a whole bunch of people. Exactly. And they don't probably live down the street, so that's not going to be cheap. Yeah. The low-tech method that allows you to authenticate electronic data, there is external evidence that is offered to prove that the communications are what they purport to be. For example, if the evidence being offered relates to Facebook, well, on that person's Facebook page, you would look for a photo of the defendant. And if the defendant, if there's a photo at all, if it's of the person that is on trial, that would probably be pretty important, huh, Tane? Yeah. And, you know, things like if the uh, location of the defendant that's given is the actual location where the defendant lives or generally stays. You could look at the actual communications themselves. And if it's a chain of back and forth communications, if there's some external evidence, like I'm going to Aunt Donna's house and this person has an Aunt Donna, mm -hmm. or if I'm going to show up and bring you the concrete at a certain date and time and you show up at that location, there's a real chance this is probably a legitimate conversation. So what you're talking about is what we've looked at in a lot of different uh, evidence issues, and that is the indicia of reliability. 
Is that what we're talking about? That's what we're talking about. Very ah, good. Very good. Sense. You've been paying attention to Garen. Now it makes sense. So we're, when those things start happening and, and the family members show up, is it possible that was all forged 100%? Tane, I don't have a Facebook page. And when we first sort of rolled out the 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 new evidence code, you know, back a thousand <laughs> years ago. It's in like fourth grade now. <laughs> the So when that was coming out, Professor Millich allowed me to make, you know, part of this presentation. And mm-hmm. I did it on authentication. And my staff attorney at the time was this guy named Garen Mueller. And, and he created a fake Facebook page in about 15 minutes that had my name, my address, pictures of me, pictures of me with my wife, all from the internet, all without my knowledge. That is absolutely horrifying. So that would be authenticated if there was a message there that would come from me. Now, if that gives me as the other party, you know, I could maybe call the expert from Facebook and say he doesn't have an account. Or whatever, so that all this kind of goes out the window. But the initial hurdle, it's low, but it exists, and it would be crossed by doing that. Yeah, in in fact, uh, the the cases say that uh, the state need only produce evidence, quote, sufficient to support a finding that the messages were actually sent and received by the defendant. Absolutely, that's a that's a, that's a lesser burden for sure. And that can be done informally, and there's all kind of case law on this. We're not just making this stuff up. We actually do some research occasionally. Don't yeah, we other, other people do it, and we acquire it, shall we say. Correct. And so as you go through, so, so we've got the authentication hurdle crossed, Tane. Now mm-hmm. let's look at the hearsay part of some of this evidence. You want to? Yeah, sure. Um, there was a, a, a case called Glispie, G-L-I-S-P-I-E versus State, 300 Georgia 128. It's a 2016 case. Um, in that case, two cell phones were seized incident to an arrest in a drug case. At the trial, the officer testified as to the text messages extracted from the cell phones, and the text indicated the defendant used the cell phone to sell drugs. The officer read multiple incoming and outgoing text messages while testifying. And that's the key, the incoming and the outgoing part. So the court held that the outgoing text messages would be the statement of the defendant. We've always said that that is not even hearsay. It doesn't have to follow through an exception. That's not hearsay. It's an admission of a party opponent. opponent, And it, 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 it absolutely comes in. You can't, you can't cross-examine your own statement anyway. That's 24-8-801-D2A. And so... We know that, and therefore the, the, the outgoing text messages are not even hearsay. That's a non-issue. The yeah. problem is the incoming messages. Mm-hmm. Those would be hearsay more likely than not because, sure. Tame, we know what the sort of the definition of hearsay is, right? Yeah, it's an out-of-court statement used to prove the fact of the matter asserted. Correct. The truth of the matter the truth asserted. Of the matter asserted, sorry. And that's okay. Well, sometimes you might want to introduce some of these incoming messages for the fact that they were made or what time they were made or mm-hmm. whatever. But the the truth of what's said is irrelevant to it's even being admissible. Well then well then maybe it's it's not even hearsay. But if the incoming message is being offered to prove its truth, like somebody was willing to pay $30 for a G of concrete, mm-hmm. then that would be, I, don't know if that, I mean, that's probably a ridiculous number. But anyway, if, if, that, if that was, if that 30 was 30 large, maybe. Yeah. Oh, I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know anything. Is, yeah. Um, but if, if that is relevant, the price being offered or what was being sold or whatever, 
then more likely than not, the incoming message is being offered for the truth of the matter asserted. So it really does qualify as hearsay, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so it has to be analyzed under whether there's some exceptions that it falls under or, you know, has to be offered in that fashion. You know, we've talked about this Johnson case, 347 Georgia Appeals 831 2018 case about two or three times today in this context because it has like lots of different issues and some of them are really interesting, at least to me. So in this case, the judge allowed the cell exchanges, both incoming and outgoing, because the business records exception authorized the admission of the documents. And then the defense lawyer said, well, judge, that's fine, but it's the hearsay that's in the messages, and the judge just sort of made no reference at all to the fact that there was a second layer of hearsay that had to be analyzed. The judge just said they're admissible under 8036 as a business record exception to the hearsay rule and carry on. He's like, but the content, judge, and that was sort of missed. After the conviction, the judge made some specific findings and and made some of these findings about whether they were offered for the truth of the matter asserted and whatnot. But this is a good case that that I really think that if you struggle with this or if you have one of these cases, it might be worth looking at because it sort of walks down the line of authentication to hearsay to business records, but then the second layer of hearsay, et cetera. Do you have anything you want to add about that? Well, yeah. I I mean, one of the things that the court talked about in that is kind of explaining the difference between admissions and, and other hearsay, just like what you were talking about a minute ago. The court said, admission shall not be excluded by the hearsay rule, and admission is a statement offered against a party which is the party's own statement. In other words, it's it's not hearsay. It's, it's, it's the party's own statement. And then as to the incoming text in that Johnson case, the court basically said, that when the when the judge made a conclusion that the incoming texts were putting in context the defendant's outgoing text, and therefore it wasn't really it didn't really matter if they were true or not, it, they were needed to put what the defendant was saying back to that person in context. The appellate court said that that trial court was only partially accurate. It said that the text messages sent by the defendant obviously would go to prove the defendant's identity as the owner and user of the phone, the defendant's participation in this armed robbery that was the subject of the trial. All of that was fine. It said that the incoming messages were not admitted for the truth of the matter asserted and therefore non-hearsay, but merely for the context of the defendant's inculpatory, outgoing text messages. It says even assuming that the incoming messages were inadmissible because they were hearsay, they found that the messages that were incoming weren't inculpatory of this defendant. They didn't say anything. So in other words, we think you're wrong, but what they said wasn't, it was like, okay, all right, see you then. It didn't prove a whole lot of anything. They weren't, I mean, is it, it, are you offering it for the truth of the matter asserted if it says, okay? Right. And, and the court was basically warning or admonishing other trial courts saying a blanket admission of all incoming text messages as quote unquote context would be error. In other words, there may be some that would be admissible to show context, but you don't just get to admit every incoming message is saying, well, it puts everything else in context. 
So, Tane, you know, talking about some of these recordings and electronic information, you ever had anybody try to play a recorded jail conversation? About a million times. <laughs> in fact, in just about every criminal case I've ever tried, there have been jail calls. You know, when we learn, when we do these podcasts, we also we also learn a lot. I was unaware that there was a whole separate sort of authentication statute for automated recording devices like surveillance cameras and jail you know, audio recordings. That's 24-9-923C. And that is under a case called Smith versus the state 300 Georgia 538, a 2017 case. I just didn't know that there was a whole separate authentication issue for things that people aren't manning the cameras. Yeah. And I've always enjoyed part of the authentication of those jail recordings, which includes the fact that before every single one of them, there's a warning that says everything you're about to say is going to be recorded and could be used against you in a court of law. It's usually a very, very obvious sign. Yes. Yes. And it usually says it in the recording of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like the operator used to break in and tell you stuff. It's very helpful that way. Yeah. And there's, there's another case, uh, bully versus the state. Uh, it's three fifty seven Georgia appeal six sixty three, And that's a 2020 case. Defendant was talking on a recorded line from the jail during uh, the trial, which is always a good thing to be doing. <laughs> and uh, on appeal, uh, while claiming ineffective assistance of counsel, it was noted that the wife was not called as a witness at the trial. That when she was heard on the call, the call was played for the jury. And as you might imagine, the content of the call was not awesome for the defendant. And so the appellate court noted that what the defendant said was an admission and was not objectionable. However, what the prosecutor really wanted this, the call for was what the wife said, which the defendant acknowledged. The Court of Appeals held that the wife's portion of the comment was hearsay and found that trial counsel was deficient for failing to object. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, they rarely want the... I mean, sometimes the defendants confess, but usually it's the, it's the conversation that's outbound that and they agree with or acknowledge or whatever that really sort of becomes the crux of the thing. Yeah. So folks, I want to thank you as always for listening to the good judgment podcast. I recognize this episode along is is probably quite long and we have um, frankly decided that, that we, we can't address all the search and seizure issues. I know that uh, now justice LaGrua, former judge LaGrua, was very interested in a lot of these topics when people would submit yeah. subpoenas for electronic devices, but we can't just, we just can't pass up a good evidence discussion around here. Yeah. We always love a good evidence discussion. We're weird like that. Anyway, take these electronic evidence issues slowly and make, sh- make the separate determination concerning each and every quote search of an electronic device. Um, that analysis really always helps. So this episode, as we've said a few other times, really was the product of a listener's request for information on search and seizure issue and for issues, Fourth Amendment issues and hearsay issues. And we were able to sort of weave that into one. Please continue to help us help you by providing input and suggestions for episode topics at, ju- at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And then, of course, you can visit our website, which Tane does a great job of reminding people of, which is goodjudgepod.com. If you want any episodes, episode notes from this or any of our other episodes, they're all posted there. Absolutely. Well, again, thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. And always remember, insert funny comment here.
Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Hey, Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap up this session? (laughs) Yes, Wade. Yes, I do have some thoughts. A little lime juice will keep an avocado fresh. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.